accent of women would like to acknowledge the Kulin nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respect to elders past and present of the Kulin nation and recognize their unceded sovereignty. Hi, and welcome to Accent of Women. I'm Ayan Shirwa. This week on Accent of Women, we look at the circumstances that bring Tamil refugees to Australia. Some of you may have heard of the story of Priya and Adesh and their two daughters, Kopika and Tanika, also known as the Bilawa family. But do you know why families like theirs and others flee Sri Lanka to seek a home in Australia? Nairo Kindesami, a researcher at the University of Melbourne, gives us a condensed history of the struggles of the Tamil people of Sri Lanka and their bid for asylum in Australia. In the second half of the show, two of the founders of the African-Australian online talk show Set the Tone discuss their pilot episode. But first up, who is Nairo Kandasamy? My name is Nairo Kandasamy and I'm a researcher at the University of Melbourne. I've just completed my PhD thesis, which looked at the long-term resettlement experiences of uh, Tamil refugees, Tamil child refugees from Sri Lanka. Um, so I looked at um, experiences of belonging and identity among Tamils who arrived during the Civil War in the 80s and the 90s. I came to this research topic through my own personal experiences, having arrived in Australia as a child refugee myself. So I've grown up with stories of war. Um, I've grown up with, uh, you know, with growing up, I've grown up um, in multicultural uh, places, so having to navigate those experiences as well. So I guess my research is a product of my personal experiences, but also my my scholarly interests in trying to understand society. And can you tell us a bit about the Tamil people of Sri Lanka? So the Tamil people of Sri Lanka are an indigenous group. In Sri Lanka, they're a minority group as well. So the um, Tamil people have historically been marginalised by the Singhala Buddhist chauvinist state. So we, as Tamil people in Sri Lanka, have, um, at least since independence, been um, suppressed. We've been um, we've been targeted by the Sri Lankan state because of our minority status. Mm. And since independence, we've struggled to gain equal rights as citizens on the island. And prior to independence, what was life like for the Tamil community? Prior to the British rule, at least, there was also the Dutch and the Portuguese who had colonised Sri Lanka. So there's a long history of colonisation in Sri Lanka. And prior to that, the Tamils lived um, in various kingdoms um, and... Uh, the island was separated into these kingdoms and each of these kingdoms had their own their own rules, their own um, ways of living. So essentially, you can argue that colonisation has drastically contributed to, um, I guess, the further, the historical marginalisation of the Tamil people. So the anti-Tamil sentiment in Sri Lanka, where did that come from? Yep, so again, you can trace that back to colonisation, but you can also... Um, I mean, I guess in modern history, we can trace it back to perhaps the 1950s. So Sri Lanka gained independence in 1948. But as early as the 1950s, there was anti-Tamil sentiments among the majority single estate. And a part of these struggles was 
the single estate not giving Tamils, for example, equal, right, equal rights to education, equal employment opportunities, um, because of these, you know, very significant, uh, I guess, control. I've heard it described as systemic colonisation. There mm-hmm. were policies put in place. Um, can you tell us a bit about those yeah. policies? Yeah, so, for example, in the 1970s, there was a policy called the Standardisation Policy, which um, essentially prevented Tamil uh, high school students from entering university um, with the same marks as their singular counterparts, and that severely disadvantaged uh, the young Tamil population. And you can say that it was one of the, the key factors that resulted um, in an insurgency. A few other policies that uh, significantly affected Tamils was the singular-only language policy, which essentially made uh, Singhalese the national uh, language on the island and that immediately excluded all of the Tamil speakers on the island um, and prevented their language from being recognised by the state. Um, Further to that was the Citizenship Act, which stripped all of the Indian Tamils um, who were working, who had arrived to Sri Lanka and worked in the plantation areas. Um, of their citizenship on the island. So what we're seeing is a systematic uh, marginalisation of the Tamil community in Sri Lanka by this by successive Sri Lankan governments. Mm. And how did the Tamil community in the northeast? How did they um, respond to that repression? So I mean, in their own various pockets, there were Tamil communities trying to resist these. Um, these dominant state forces. Um, what you saw was a rise in, in Tamil militant groups who were run by these youth who were frustrated by the political inadequacies, um, not only from within their Tamil community, but also from the single estate as well. Mm. So in the 70s, there were, you know, there were multiple uh, Tamil militant groups um, who were who were taking up arms in resistance? And one such group is the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, also mm-hmm. known as Tamil Tigers. Um, who are they, and um, how did the government view them? So the Tamil Tigers are one of these militant groups that emerged um, during this period of intense political. Um, I guess turmoil in the island, and the Tamil Tigers were. You know, they were made up of these young youth, these youth who were frustrated, who wanted to see a better future for not only themselves, but for the next generation. Um, and it was, it you know, it was headed by Velupale um, Prabaharan. Um, and the group was essentially about ana- allowing um, or giving Tamils the opportunity uh, to self-determine and to self-govern. Mm. So they established um, a separate state, um, a de facto state in the north and east where they built their own forms of governance. They had their own um, systems in place. And so for several years, they, you know, once once the LTT became the dominant militant group, they essentially governed the north and the east, so the Tamil-occupied areas, through their own political systems. And the LTTE, I'm not sure if they're still listed as a terrorist organisation, but do you think that label also impacted the way the world sees Tamil asylum seekers? Yeah, so once they were prescribed a terrorist organisation, it definitely changed the way the world viewed uh, the Tamil Tigers. And I think the label 
that has resulted in that has dramatically affected how we view, for example, Tamil refugees who mm. flee the island, how we view Tamils in the diaspora who support who, who have supported the Tamil Tigers in the past. Um, whether that's through, um, you know, rehabilitation um, supports or um, raising funds uh, for the de facto state. And there was a civil war that happened. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the civil war, um, I mean, it's, you know, we can trace the civil war to the 1980s, to the early 1980s, following um, the anti-Tamil riots in 1983 where thousands of Tamils were massacred Mm. um, in the Black July riots in Colombo. But I think it's important to note that the violence in Sri Lanka has has been going on since independence. So the civil war that we commonly attribute is that period between 1983 and 2009. Um, And it's during that period that Thousands of Tamil civilians have lost their lives um, and thousands more refugees have fled the island. And since then, what has life been like for them? Yeah, so since the civil war ended, um, while, you know, there obviously is no um, armed conflict, I think there is still conflict on the island in the sense that Tamils continue to be persecuted um, and there is, you know, very much... Uh, a systematic process of of keeping Tamils as a marginalised group mm. um, and keeping them and preventing them from having their equal rights mm. on the island or in their homeland. Mm. So, for example, there is still a high military occupation in Tamil-occupied uh, areas in the north and the east. Um, Tamil families are still grieving the loss of their loved ones uh, from the Civil War, Tamil mm. families are still grieving the loss, the disappearance of their loved ones uh, since the Civil War ended. And there's an investigation um, that was led by the International Truth and Justice Project. You kind of touched that on Tuesday at breakfast. Um, maybe if you could just tell us again um, what that report was about and also major findings from that report. Yeah, so the report... Um, has been collected using the testimonies of around 70 survivors um, of torture. And the report essentially brings to the fore key personnel who are in the Sri Lankan security forces who have perpetrated um, forms of torture that are unimaginable. Um, And these individuals have continued to be a part of the, the security forces, which is the most worrying aspect, that these individuals continue to remain in power. Um, and so the report highlights and identifies uh, the different kinds of, of torture um, that have that have happened to these um, to these Tamils who have been held mm-hmm. captive. Mm-hmm. I mean, the report is um, is you know is mostly based on the experiences of Tamil people but also includes four Sinhalese people um, who have been affected by uh, the torture inflicted on them by the security forces. So it essentially sheds a light on an issue that has been um, that has been hidden by the Sri Lankan government for several years. Um, I wonder if the fear of terrorism that Sri Lanka has, do you see that playing out in their arrests and, like you said, the torture of the Tamil community? Yeah, so, for example, the Prevention of Terrorism Act um, has been used 
time and time again um, inappropriately um, by the Sri Lankan security forces to arrest anyone that they, um, that, you know, just on the basis that they might potentially have links to a terrorist organization. And that Mm. gives them um, incredible powers to do what they want when they want. And so as a result, you've seen the arbitrary arrests of, of Tamils. And that has been one of the things that um, Tamil asylum seekers have cited, that being returned back to Sri Lanka is a risk for them. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah, so what we do know of the, asylum, the Tamil asylum seekers that have been returned is that they have been harassed by the security forces. Their families have been harassed as well. So we know that it's not safe for them to return to Sri Lanka under these circumstances. And one family that I feel like is becoming the face of Tamil asylum seekers, at least, is Priya and Nades and their daughters. Can you tell us about them and also maybe some updates on their case? Yeah, so Priya and Nades fled Sri Lanka um, due to circumstances of persecution. They didn't choose to leave. They had no option. Um, what we know about their current case is that they have been held, they're currently held um, on Christmas Island against their will. Um, they don't have access to, um, you know, to basic facilities. Uh, we know that Kopika and Theronika are struggling in, um, in Christmas Island due to the, due to the isolation. Um, we know that uh, the courts will hear um, mm. their case. We don't know exactly when and I, yeah. and I can't actually comment on the legal details of the case. Mm. So Nira, you have a book coming out hopefully next year in April. Um, Would you be able to tell us a bit about that book? Yeah, sure. So I have co-authored a book with uh, my colleagues, Dr. Nirukshi Pereira and Charishma Ratnam um, called A Sense of Voodoo, The Recreation of Home by the Sri Lankan Tamil Diaspora in Australia. Voodoo means home in the Tamil language. And so this book is a collection of works by uh, Tamil studies scholars in Australia as well as uh, Tamil artists, prominent Tamil um, artists um, in Australia. And it's really about trying to uh, provide insights about how the Tamil community in Australia understands ideas of home, belonging and identity since the end of the Civil War in 2009. And on community radio stations right across Australia... You're listening to Accent of Woman. Last week, I got the opportunity to see four remarkable girls debut their online talk show, Set the Tone. Adia Maluk and Yabiyar sat down with me to talk about the process of making a talk show and the impact of colorism on young girls. So, um, my name is Yav. I'm 18 years old and I'm completing my VCE studies this year. Um, I'm looking into studying business or commerce in uni. And yeah, I'm one quarter of Sent the Tone. So. And I'm Adia Mulok. I'm also currently in year 12 right now, about to finish my VCE. Um, I hope, like, what I want to study in um, uni is architecture, like buildings and stuff. And yeah, that's me. 
So Adier, mm. you initiated this project mm-hmm. and you reached out to these girls. Yeah. What is it about these girls that made you go, okay, I want them to come on board mm-hmm. and I want them to come on board for this particular mm. project? Well, I've known these three girls all my life. So it was easy. I want people to be as committed as I was to this project. So I, I didn't just want to get random people that would come in like, oh, yeah, I'm interested and then bail halfway. I want people that would be committed and actually, like, do the work with me. And these three, these three girls, I've grown up with them my whole life. When I talked to them about it, they were very interested and very, like, willing to do it. But the thing that I asked them is that if you're going to do this, will you do it for the long run, not just a, yes, I'm interested, and then dip. So they were like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. And I, like, I've known these people my whole life, and my family was happy that I got, like, these three people to work with me. So it was, like, an easy thing. (laughs) And if we were to, like, um, have meetings or something, it would be easy because we basically live around the same place. So what's it been like um, working with the girls? It's been it's been a joy. It's a good experience to have because, like I said, we've grown up with each other. We know each other that well. And it's basically we just laugh. Like majority of the time that we're working, we can be serious when it's time to be serious and we can joke around when it's time to joke around. So it's mm. been it's been lovely. And you are on Facebook. Um, I was reading your bio from the um, Set the Tone Facebook page mm-hmm. and you said something interesting. You said that you wanted to foster conversations mm-hmm. about young people. Um, maybe you could sort of touch on that. What type of conversations um, would you like to start? And are there things that adults and the media and the community are getting wrong about young people? Well, I feel like um, us as young people, I feel like we're really scared when it comes to like approaching adults and like having conversations. Mm-hmm. So um, having like a platform like this, I feel like it like ignition. What's it called? Initiates. Mm the like, topics that we don't talk about like normally mm. um, and also uh, I wanted like the media and stuff to see another side to like youths you mm-hmm. know especially of South Sudanese descent mm. um, you know they're portrayed really poorly mm-hmm. yeah pretty much yeah poorly mm-hmm. so very, very. Um, just seeing that just seeing that like a couple of us you know from Pakenham or something like that. Can Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Um, just seeing that, like, a couple of us can just come together and actually have a conversation and spark that, like, mm. or starting, I, feel, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, starting, like, a domino effect in mm. a type of way to encourage people to talk about topics that aren't talked about yeah. yes. in, like, a home. And w- and what's been the reception um, with the community? Because you said that you wanted it to start a domino effect. Mm-hmm. What have young people said to you about this project? Um, I feel like because well, our pilot, it's on colorism. So it started, like, conversation on, you know, young people bleaching and ways to, like, um, let them love themselves, mm. you know, mm. even though they have different journeys, not to shame other people. Yeah, definitely. It also teaches people, yeah. like, ways to deal with, like, if, for example, if someone was bleaching, not to judge them, how to approach the topic or how to talk to them. And, yeah, and the guests that we had, they really, because they have also, like, gone through that process, yeah. they have bleach. And, yes, they're from two different, like, communities. It shows that it still affects us you know, it still affects like the Asian community mm. and the African community. There might be different circumstances and different ways, but it still affects us, yeah. and it gets people to open up about it. 
Yeah. And your first show, as you said, was on colorism. And what mm. was interesting was, as you mentioned, it's not just the African community who are impacted by colorism, but for those who have never heard of this concept, mm. can you give us just a brief um, overview of what colorism means? Um, colorism is discrimination mm-hmm. of someone who of darker skin tones. Mm. Um, it's very subjective. So someone in America could see, you know, a brown, someone who we consider to be light skin, mm. to be dark skin, and they discriminate against them yes. because, um, I don't know, I feel like black people have been trained to, like, yeah. uplift people who have Eurocentric features. Yeah. So if they're lighter or closer to that, then they're more beautiful than someone that's darker. Yeah. Or if they have like a particular shaped nose or, or small hair. lips. Yeah. Yeah, some of that. Right. So it's not just skin tone. It's, it's also yes, everything. It's features. Right. Okay. So when you were thinking of looking at this topic of colorism, did you speak to elders or, um, I don't know, community leaders? Because I'd be curious to know, if people were like supportive of you having a conversation about such a taboo subject, like we said, I I personally didn't speak to anyone older because, like I said, you have to open up that space to be able to talk to them. And I felt like I didn't have that space yet to mm. go and tell them, "Oh, I'm talking about colorism. This is what it is." I I wanted I I didn't know how to tell them that I was talking about colorism or if they would even understand what colorism is. So right. I didn't talk to older people but I did talk to my peers and the people that know what colorism is people that are bleaching that yes I'm going to talk about colorism and we discussed it but I didn't talk to any older people because I didn't know how to open up that space to talk to them what do you think the issues would be um I feel like it's because we grew up in a different society yeah definitely so obviously most of them grew up in Africa Mm mm-hmm I don't think they know what colorism is, like as a word or how like to describe it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're aware of it in a way, but we are. Mm. So we're trying to, you know, show them that it is yeah. a problem. And also, we're here to discuss it. And we're from two different generations. Yeah. So <laughs> that makes it really hard. Mm, no, that's absolutely right. I I pretty much agree. With that as well, when I was your age, which was so long ago, um, <laughs> but when I was your age, I remember, I think people who were a lot older than me, I think they might, they probably, they probably thought I didn't know about it or mm. I wasn't as aware. So they don't realize that even though they might not talk about it, um, that we see it. Mm-hmm. We see when that cream is like yeah. taken off the shelf and, <laughs> and we, we notice when their hands don't match their face, mm-hmm. like... We got eyes. We have eyes. But, yeah, that's. I'm glad that you did touch on that. Um, so your the show is called is – it, is the show called Set the Tone or is it the group that's called Set the Tone? Um, it's the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So the show is called Set the Tone. Mm-hmm. Tell me, where did you get the inspiration for that name? Um, well, it was pretty much from a, convers- a conversation we were talking like about colorism <laughs> and um two of the well one of the girls that was in the group and a friend they were arguing about like colorism mm. and their sides on and sp- like perspectives on that <laughs> and um Adio, so one of them she just said it like oh you guys need to set the tone and then 
just stuck from then on. Mm. And we just realized it was like a play on words. Mm-hmm. So like set the tone, so tone for skin tone mm. or tone <laughs> for like, you know, conversations, yes. set the tone, be like very. I, don't know how to I love that. That's yeah. multi-layered. <laughs> yeah. That's like a play on play on play. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look, I'm so proud of you girls. That's one of the reasons that um, I really was excited to have you come on the show because I went to this screening mm-hmm. um, of the first episode, the pilot mm-hmm. um, episode, and it was such a huge turnout. You even had the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The goddamn mayor came down. <laughs> what was that like having the mayor in the audience? I, it didn't, it hasn't hit me that we had the mayor in the audience. Like it's still, it just hasn't hit me. Hmm. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know, I feel like it's just, uh, it's wholesome. It's a wholesome feeling because we didn't expect it to reach someone like the mayor who would come and actually watch something that I don't think, well, they don't go through that. She's not. She's white. Yeah, she's white. So she doesn't probably know what colorism is. She was just so supportive and happy to see young people taking the narrative back, right? Mm Because it feels like we have no control of our own stories. Mm -hmm. And you all were like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, if this is going to be about us, let us talk about it. And mm-hmm. you did a great job of that. Thank you. Um, now let's get to the process of making the show. What was that like? It's a learning experience. Yeah. You know, most of us didn't, well, we're not interested in like media, like a media career. Mm. And we also don't know how like stuff works, like shoot days and stuff. We yeah. didn't know it was going to be long. Really? Yeah. And that you have to actually like plan out step by step what you're doing, time. Okay, this is happening. It was it was a lot, but thank God we had our mentor, um, Dorcas. She really helped out Yay. with the whole planning. And even before that, like just coming up with ideas to pick a topic that affected us and that we want to talk about. It was it was a great experience. We've finished the first episode. Mm-hmm. So the second episode, I'm not sure when it's coming, but what would you like to talk about next? Like maybe gender and the difference between like how we as girls are treated compared to guys in like our community. And that is a great note to end on. If you want to watch their pilot episode, go to setthetone.com.au. To learn more about Tamil refugees in Australia, go to the website Tamil Refugee Council. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwat.